Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. When my guest today, Gina Moore, was in middle school, she became intensely curious about the Holocaust, reading about everything she could get her hands on about the subject. That curiosity somewhat improbably led Gina, who's from a small town in West Virginia, to develop a pretty amazing pen pal. I remember having these little addresses where you could send a self-addressed stamped envelope and you get a list of like movie stars or TV stars and their studios and you could send a letter to a celebrity care of their studio, and sometimes they'd send you a, an autographed postcard or something like that. So as we're doing this, because we're watching Saved by the Bell and whatever else, I'm reading all these Anne Frank books. And so I thought, well, you know, a book publisher is kind of like an author's you know, studio, so I'm just going to send letters to writers. And I ended up for about five years being pen pals with the woman who hit Anne Frank. These days, Gina is based in Nairobi, Kenya, and is the international women's rights correspondent for BuzzFeed. I love this episode, and I think you will too. Her story is just so fascinating, and I encourage you to follow her work on BuzzFeed. As always, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to peruse our archives, where we have lots of great conversations like the one you are about to hear. You can also send me an email via the website or hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg, and I do love hearing from you guys. Keep these suggestions coming. And now here is my conversation with Gina Moore. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Although when I first moved to Rwanda, I started telling everyone that West Virginia was the Rwanda of America, and Rwanda was the West Virginia of Africa. I can see it. That was true until the Rwandan economy started growing, and now it's not really an applicable analogy anymore. I think West Virginia is further behind. Um, But I I love that place. I I have a fierce loyalty to that place. Um, But I grew up there and uh, 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 then went to college in in the Northeast. I went to Boston University in Boston. But I think probably the the line, the, the sort of origin point that leads to what I'm doing now is um, I was really, as a kid, from the time I was about seven years old, really, really interested in um, the Holocaust. And everything about it was completely foreign to me. At that time, I was seven, right? So I didn't know what was a Europe or what was a Germany or what was a Jew because my family is utterly un-Jewish. Yes. And uh, being from West Virginia and all <laughs> West Virginia more. Yeah. Um, 
So, yeah, so I was really, really deeply interested, but I also... Was it, was it like the movies at the time? I figure you're probably, what, in your... About my age, probably, right? You're, you're in your mid-30s, I suspect. I am, alas, in my mid-30s. That so, is true. So, you know, you were in middle school probably when Schindler's List came out. Maybe you read, did you read those mouse books by Art Spiegelman? I did not actually read the mouse books by Art Spiegelman until much, 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 much later. I was... Um, Schindler's List came out between my eighth and ninth grade year. It was a real rite of passage, um, middle and high school. Um, I remember taking a boyfriend to it at the time, and he was completely confused. Um, but no, when I was a kid, I, I somehow got the Diary of Anne Frank in my hands, and it was, um, you know, a really compelling story. The the the, the voice in it uh, uh, was really really spoke to me somehow. Mm-hmm. And so then I, I was interested in why in the world this, this girl who seemed so interesting to me was stuck in this predicament. And so I went to the library all the time. And, and God, this sounds ridiculous. Seven years old at the library, like Googling. Well, there was no Google. Looking up in encyclopedias and card catalogs, the Holocaust. Although card, I miss card catalogs. Those things were great. They were. They were. They, you know, they, they, had, a, they had a good smell to them. They did. And there was serendipity in them. You know, you'd... you'd, you'd pull to the wrong one and then you'd be like oh that book sounds interesting there's no serendipity in the google you only get what you're asking for well not always so um, i mean it's interesting like you know growing up obviously jewish as as i am i mean the the holocaust experience is ingrained into you in like formal and informal jewish education from a very young age by the time that schindler's list came out uh, you know when i was um you know in middle school it was like kind of old news <laughs> um right. so and 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 it you know that kind of persisted throughout my like entire formal Jewish education through high school too so it's really kind of interesting to see how someone removed from that uh milieu was still nonetheless um you know attracted to it somehow Yeah there was something about that story and then the woman who hit Anne Frank is a woman named Mipkis and she wrote a book about um what that was like from her perspective and I, this, in, in the way that can only coincide in a young child's life, right? I sort of read that book at the same time I was watching, like, Saved by the Bell. And so all of, I don't remember if all my friends were doing it or if I was just somehow obsessed with this, but, like, we were writing letters to TV stars, you know? And at the time, there were all these different uh, uh, services. I don't even remember how we learned about them without the Internet, but I remember having these little addresses where you could send a self-addressed stamped envelope and you get a list of, like, movie stars or TV stars and their studios, and you could send a letter to a celebrity care of their studio, and sometimes they'd send you an autographed postcard or something like that. So as we're doing this, because we're watching Saved by the Bell and whatever else, um, I'm reading all these Anne Frank books. And so I thought, well, you know, a book publisher is kind of like an author's, you know, studio. So I'm just going to send letters to writers. Um, And so I sent one to her. And I ended up for about five years being pen pals with the woman who hit Anne Frank. And... That really sort of opened up a whole new avenue into that story for me. I became in my middle school the ambassador of, you know, that point of history. And I'd give presentations in class and stuff like that. Um, so then I had to learn more, right? And it just set me on this journey. Um, what, what, what did these letters say? Oh, you know, God, what a... I can't imagine. I look back at it now and I think, what an incredibly kind woman to indulge this, like, foreign child's obsession 
Um, little bits about uh, about the story, about what it was like for her. Um, uh, I was fact checking <laughs> little bits about one person's, you know, book that came out that didn't quite sound, you know, was this true or wasn't it true? Stuff like that. A little bit of fact checking and some stuff about like modern day issues. I think one of the reasons that. Um, um, Mipki's answered so many letters from so many people around the world was that she was very worried. She's she's dead several years now, but that she was very worried about um, the resurgence of the extreme right and um, lack of education and stuff like that in Europe. And so for her, it was a real, it was part of her mission was to spread this message in any way um, that she could. And she was pretty involved with them. Um, different educational efforts while she was a, a, a healthy person in that regard. So there's layers of that in there, too, about her being worried about that or giving talks or greeting school groups, stuff like that. I mean, what was it like when you saw the letter in the mail for the first time? Oh, my God, I freaked out. I freaked out. And she had this typewriter that made these, it, it's like the typewriter equivalent of sans serif font. It was this really pretty cursive, like, font. Um but her English was, um, you know, her fourth language or something. So sometimes it was really funny, which just delighted me, right? But I, in the meantime, was teaching myself Dutch. So I would practice that on her. It was really very charming. <laughs> That's a tough language, too. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I guess. Um, That's amazing. So, so what did you do with that? So, so you're, I mean, you're in high school at this point. You said you're, you're kind of teaching your class, the ambassador of... The Holocaust to your class in, in West Virginia? Kind of. Yeah, so someone wrote an article about me in the local paper, which um, someone read in Pittsburgh. And, um, you know, Pittsburgh the, has the probably city. the big city. Yeah, I was about an hour and 15 minutes away, and it has probably 10,000% more Jews than Wheeling, West Virginia. And uh, I, I don't remember somehow, uh, the chronology of this doesn't make sense as I'm retelling it, but I remember that someone from the um, Jewish Community Center, which also ran a Holocaust Center in Pittsburgh, read it, called my mother back when we had phone books, and you could just look people up, and, uh, and they printed your address in the paper, which no one would ever do anymore. Um, and, uh, and they got to talking, and we ended up at a Yom Hashoah service in... Uh, April of 1993, I think, mm -hmm. and having no idea what this was, you know, we'd never been in a temple before, nothing. Um, and there That's was a, a Holocaust woman... Remembrance Service for those of you who don't speak Hebrew. <laughs> right. Or feel it all like I did back then. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so we went in part because there was a woman who wanted to meet us. I think she, she thought that I was peculiarly interesting but she had herself been a hidden child in Poland and she had met Mipki somehow after the war and so she had a story that she wanted to tell us about that. Um, her name is Shulamit Bastaki and we have sort of been incredibly close ever since. She's basically part of my family. This is going back now 20 years. So I got kind of adopted into this community of Holocaust survivors um, and uh, and we would go out there and, and, and I would uh, you know, go to their programs or sometimes do, you know, oral histories or whatever counts for an oral history when a 15-year-old does it. Um, and my mom got quite engaged, too. She ended up starting a Holocaust memorial service in our town, which didn't have one. Um, and uh, uh, so we got connected with a community of mostly children of Holocaust survivors in Wheeling and then a, a network in West Virginia 
And then I ended up working with a really great lady called Edith Leafy, who um, was also a, a, a child survivor. And she was pushing for mandatory Holocaust education in West Virginia. And that was a big push nationally um, in the U.S. <clears throat> excuse me, after Schindler's List came out. I think the whole nation collectively went, what do we do with how sad we feel? I know, education. And um, so there were lots of different uh, programs getting started uh, around the country, usually through um, what was called a Holocaust Education Commission. So the governor would appoint a few people to sort of figure it out and make recommendations to the state, see if they could incorporate it into the curriculum, that kind of thing. Um, so I ended up on this commission and doing work on that for, for a little while. So, um, and that was all before I went to, to college. Um, you know, I, I had no idea that you were so steeped in this question of, of the sort of memory of the Holocaust and the memory of, of mass atrocities. I assume that you've been to the Genocide Museum in Kigali, Rwanda. I have. What, what, is, what is your impression of that place, of that museum as a museum? Um, you've been? I have been, yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's interesting. My actually, so I ended up at a at a, a program for for undergraduate that basically lets you choose your own major, and so um, I, without having the language for it at the time, because we weren't allowed to read anything uh, that came from a Marxist school of thought at then very neo conservative Boston University, but I basically have a, a degree in like the semiotics of memory. <laughs> okay. So. It's complicated, I think, but one of the things that I think really stands out, even if you have never thought about any of these questions at all, um, when you go there, is that there's competing ways of presenting the, the tragedy. Not competing, necessarily, um, but there's different, there, there's certainly a Western influence on that place, right? It's very... Um, it feels like a Western museum. It has big panels with enlarged photographs and like a certain design element to it that um, that you feel like you've you've experienced before. Um, the way it lays out the history is detailed, but um, you know, with a bit of an eye toward foreigners, I think, rather than locals. There's maybe. Um, you know, words or shorthand that if you were making a, a museum for the people of the place, you might use, or or, or a way you might write a little bit differently. Um, guess, and then yeah. there's this weird, the thing that sort of everyone comes away puzzling over, I think, is um, that display, for lack of a better word, of the bones yes. of um, some of the, the the victims of the the genocide. And I think that's, that really puzzles foreigners. Um, but that in this sort of folklore of the museum, there's people who know a lot more about that than I do. Um, but in this sort of folklore of the museum that, that I've picked up over the years, that seems to be very particularly um, important to Rwanda and to many Rwandans as a kind of um, irrefutable documentary evidence, um, uh, which is disturbing to a lot of, of, of those from the West to see. It is a very jarring uh, thing. Um, well, yeah, so I think you, it's an interesting exercise. Well, you know, you at least I, you know, kind of immediately compared it to the Holocaust Museum, which was built 50 years after the Holocaust. This was built 10 years, right, after the genocide. Mm -hmm. And there is, I think, this a degree of, of intimacy with the specific brutality of the Rwandan genocide that is lacking or is just not there in the same way 
as the Holocaust Museum. Like, for example, you mentioned the bones in the Holocaust Museum. They have like shoes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it just it's there's there's this. I think it's the proximity to the actual genocide um, makes the the brutality of the genocide come out in a much more clear and apparent way. I also think that there's a lot we know about the Holocaust, right? I mean, there's my experience of that. I went to the Holocaust Museum when I was 13, 14, year or two after it opened. And um, very many of the documentary photographs that they were using were photographs that I had seen somehow. An iconography of that experience, a sort of a, a visual shorthand for that moment in time, had for me already been built. And, um, and, and I remember very few um, photographs or um, short videos. There are a couple of short sort of, um, what's the word, contemporary videos, um, really sort of surprising me with their rawness or something, you know. Um, there were a couple really beautiful survivor testimonies that I remember sticking with me and have sort of to this day. Um, but, but I think that, you know, culturally we all knew a whole lot more and certainly um, it, it seems to me from my talks with so many of them over the years, American Jews grew up knowing a whole lot more about that than anyone has grown up knowing about the Rwandan genocide, you know, maybe even in Rwanda. And so, so that's missing too, right? At the time that we all go through the, the genocide museum in Rwanda, the, there's still so much that we, we don't know that hasn't become part of our, our, our you know, normalized vocabulary of atrocity, for lack of a better way of thinking of it. Um, so you referenced earlier that you went to Boston University and you got to sort of make up your own major. Yeah. Um, what was, so what was your experience in, in college there? I mean, was this kind of your first time in, in the big city? Oh, my God. It was. I mean, it really was. We, we went – I did – when I was in high school, I also did a lot of theater. And we would go um, – your junior and senior year, you'd take a trip to New York for like three days. So I'd, you know, seen tall buildings. But <laughs> then I moved to Boston. It was – Maybe a little more culture shock than I'm willing to admit, um, but it was it was great. I was really I was an incredibly um, serious student, um, so I, uh, I I was one of these people who was without distraction, sort of first and foremost in the library, discovering things. Um, but Boston was a great place because you you could really, and in the program that I was in, the professors that we had fairly extraordinary access to you could really dive into something very deeply and sort of nerd out on Ulysses and uh and then you know take a break and and toss a frisbee around by the river or whatever so there's a nice a nice balance um but I enjoyed enjoyed the city I I'm a I'm a person who's slow to warm up to things um and slow to sort of like really get in and, and, and grab it and get in and understand it and sort of wring all of the whateverness is, that is inside out. So it took me a few years to really get used to Boston. Probably wasn't until I moved back that I really was like, oh, okay, let's rock this city. But it was a great place to be an undergrad. Um, so how did you make that transition from being um, concerned and interested, I think intellectually and, and emotionally, it sounds like, in the Holocaust to um, being a reporter, you know, covering and writing and thinking about contemporary issues related to mass atrocities. Like, how, how did you start to exp- uh, express that, that urge or, or kind of just more practically, like, land your first kind of journalist gig? 
Um, I at, at BU I was a student for a few years of Ellie Wiesel, and um, we at some point read Philip Gorevich's book about Rwanda, which really made an impression on me. Um, in part because of the writing style, it was the first sort of narrative nonfiction book I, I had encountered as a sort of thinking adult. You know, someone well trained by a university experience to look at the text and say, "But what is this text?" Right, even before you dive in. Um, and, uh, and there was something resonant about reading that book at that time for me. I was, you know, like you, I think, um, just old enough to have questions about what was going on in Rwanda because it was in the newspaper. Um, and I remember feeling deeply pissed off about what I seemed to see on the front page, literally the front page, even in Wheeling, West Virginia, of the newspaper. Um the gap between that and all the sort of never again rhetoric that was part of my, the life, the part of my life that had a lot of memorialization and educational advocacy in it. Um, and feeling really frustrated and confused that the two of those didn't, didn't, didn't go together, um, uh, in a way that seemed, uh, visible in the world, uh, at that point. So I was sort of ripe for a, a re, uh, a re-engagement with that place, I think. Um, and I got very, it got very interesting. Somehow that just sort of sprang from this book that kind of stuck with me for a few years to, uh, what am I going to do to let's, let's really do this thing. In between I had graduated. I think that was, it was late in my, no, maybe not. Anyway, at some point in college I read this book and then I graduated. I went back to West Virginia. I did, uh, 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 AmeriCorps and I, played some classical music and I gave some speeches and I did all kinds of weird things for about a year, a little more than a year. And then I moved back to Boston and I started working at Harvard, which has a fellowship program for journalists. Um, and so I was helping run this conference that this, um, this, this, uh, journalism fellowship at Harvard, uh, organized every year. And when I was there, I was exposed to, um, really, 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 really incredible journalists who were like deeply available because we were in the same places all the time. And, we were in, I was encouraged as a young staffer to sort of take them out for coffee and stuff like that. And I did. And I thought, wow, this job seems a lot cooler than it seemed when I was correcting the grammar of the local paper yeah. at age 12. What's the name of that fellowship? It's, I, I know you're referring to it. It's escaping me, though. It's the Neiman Foundation. The ne- yeah, the Neiman, Fe- the Neiman Fellows. Mm-hmm. Lots of famous Neiman Fellows. So who, who are the Neiman Fellows when you were working there? Who, who, are, who are the big ones? Gosh, Al Franken, uh, was he there at that time? He was not. No, Al Franken was at the Institute of Politics oh, when I was okay. there, but he wasn't a Neiman Fellow. Um, that's the Kennedy School sort of shorter version of the Neiman Fellowship. Ah. Um, it, Susan Orlean was there. Alma Guillermo Prieto was there, and she was such a lovely human being. Um, Elizabeth Rubin, who's a really great international journalist, was there. Um, and there were just some really incredible local reporters. A woman named Amy Nutt, who has gone on to win the Pulitzer Prize for feature writing, um, but at the time was doing, uh, uh, well, I guess long form for, for her paper, but also deep investigation. She's a science reporter now at the Washington Post. She's done everything. She was incredible. She was um, really inspiring, just really amazing energy. And, you know, she fielded a lot of uh, uh, the kind of questions you ask when you're 23 and trying to figure out what to do with your life, you know, very, very graciously. Um, Maggie Mulvihill was an investigative reporter at the Boston Herald. Um, who was there, and I'll never remember. She's the only one who had the balls to say this to me. I was 23 about to turn, maybe I was 24 when I met her. Anyway, I was in there, and I was telling her what I wanted to do. And She said, oh, so you don't really want to go to the traditional journalism route. You want to be a foreign correspondent. I said, yeah. She's like, you better get cracking. 
this isn't a job for old people and you're getting older. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I was like, oh my God. I think that's when I decided to apply to grad school. Love it. Love it. Love it. So, so how, so how did you become a foreign correspondent then? What, what was the, what was the path that took you, uh, I suppose to Africa, although I don't know, maybe you were somewhere else first. Yeah, no, straight to Africa. Um, I polled all these people, right? Writers and editors who were fellows or who I had access to through the, um, the programs that, that I helped to, to plan there and um, basically tried to see the, the perennial question in journalism is, is grad school worth it or not, right? Should you or shouldn't you go to grad school? It's a very tight. I'm on the no end of that spectrum. I, I ended up on the yes yeah. end because I heard from a lot of the kind of people who I knew I would probably want to hire me that while I was very charming and clearly passionate, they had basically no experience. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think at the time, by the time I went to grad school, I had freelanced three pieces for the Boston Globe, and I was very proud of that. Um, But but that that seemed right to me. I thought, Mm -hmm. okay, I know I can write, but you're right. I I don't understand how you think, and that seems valuable to me. Yeah, the only reason I said no uh, to to that is I sort of um, became a journalist before I had formal journalist training, like just through just a wonderful um, circumstance. I was a writing fellow at the American Prospect. That was like my big my big break in two thousand and four. That's so cool. Yeah, and I hadn't studied journalism in, in, in any sort of formal way, but I had this I think set of expertise or or interest, and and you know I had some clips. Uh, on international issues and and they were just kind of looking for people to do like non Iraq focused international issues writing at the prospect. And, you know, I was there, I had some like really good mentorship and and training and, you know, made the connections I think I needed to make. Um, But, uh, you know, I could see how if you didn't have that just very fortuitous um, circumstance that I had that you would want to go the, the grad school route first. Yeah, I think it's really deeply individual. I mean, people will write to me and say, should I or shouldn't I go to grad school? And if I have time, I'll say, send me an email about why you're thinking one way or the other, or let's hop, let's hop on the phone, because it's really, it's so idiosyncratic, I think. It mm-hmm. makes a lot of sense for one person in context A, and that same person in context B, it may not make sense for. Um, but the other thing, I, I really believe in being deeply transparent about... Um, economic privilege and money mm-hmm. um, in the industry in general, but also in the grad school conversation, because it is not at all a cheap thing to undertake. And, and you don't get high paying jobs when you get out of it. You know, it's, exactly. not like, it's not like law school, you know, where you can count on pink and six figures coming out of it. From a purely economic perspective, yeah. it's the craziest thing you could possibly do if you were thinking about future, you know, valuation of cash or something. Um, and so I say that to say that I went for free. Um, I was really fortunate to get, um, as an undergrad, I was a Truman Scholar, which contributes money towards your graduate education. And um, for graduate school, I had a Jack Kent Cook Scholarship. Um, and between the two of those, I was able to go to school for journalism and for international affairs without awesome. paying money. Awesome, awesome. So what, when did you first land in Africa uh, as a journalist? And that's why I could do that. Yeah. I, um, I basically had money for an extra semester of school and no credits to take anymore because I had done a dual degree. And so I was able to put together an independent study focused on the things I was interested in in Rwanda and use my graduate fellowship to pay for that semester in Rwanda. And so I moved to Rwanda full time in um, January 2008 and, uh, uh, and I was there for nine or ten months. 
Um, and what was really important to me about having that fellowship, in addition to giving me the kind of safety net that without it, I'm not, I'm not a risk averse. I'm, I'm too risk averse to have gone without something like that. I couldn't mm -hmm. just get on a plane and then hack it. Um, so, so I had that in my pocket. I had done an internship at the Christian Science Monitor the summer before, and they ended up being, you know, basically my only client when I was there for the first sort of few months. Um, and I also had, you know, financial security enough that I could get my mm -hmm. feet underneath me in Rwanda, um, and I could spend some time really trying to appreciate the culture and the country and the language and stuff like that as well, rather than jumping immediately into churning, churning things out. Which, when when you you know you move over with three thousand dollars in savings and you know a passion, you really have to get moving as quickly as possible. Probably in a capital city, and at that time, yeah. probably not Rwanda. There was you know very little. It was nice to be there because there were so few people there that if someone needed something there, I was. Um, but if you needed to jump in and make money, you would have moved to Nairobi or even Kampala. So yeah, Rwanda, two thousand eight. That was the the I, I was there for two days, uh, very briefly in two thousand and eight as well. And I mean, my impressions of the country at the time was just uh, you know a, a place most certainly on the ascent. Yeah, I think so. I had first gone to Rwanda in two thousand five for a couple of weeks, and so I came back in two thousand eight with um, end of two thousand five, beginning of two thousand eight. So about two years apart. Um, I came back with a certain sort of set of expectations about what I might find and what might be interesting, and even those were not accurate anymore. Things were changing, you know, so 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 fast. Although the pace, I think, in the last few years has been even quicker than it felt like it was between two thousand eight, two thousand nine, two thousand ten, um, and that's been interesting to see. I, I think, you know, especially because the people that I've known for now a long time. And some of whom maybe weren't sure if this whole ascent was going to work out or, you know, what might happen. I think everybody has a fear of what might happen. But if you're a survivor of the Rwanda genocide, it's a whole different thing, you know. Um, and I th it's been interesting to see these people that I've known and kind of, you know, they're usually a few years younger than me, watch sort of move into adulthood, you know, kids and all that stuff now. Um, feel like this is a real thing that they can inhabit and be part of and, 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 and contribute to and rely on. Um, yeah, it's interesting. It's really interesting. I mean, there's, you know, uh, other so, issues. It's all anecdotal, but it's been beautiful. Have you spent most of, of um, your life since 2008 in, in Africa? Yeah. Where, what country have you spent longest? Uh, Kenya and, and Nairobi, where you live now? No, Rwanda. Rwanda. Okay. How long did you live in Rwanda in all? Uh, man, if you add it all up, I don't really know. But I was basically there until um, until I left in 2012 for a year. I had a fellowship. I came back in 2013, and I stayed for about seven months. And then I moved back to New York. I sort of I said goodbye to Africa, and I moved back to New York because I thought that's what needed to happen at that time. And then I got a job that moved me to Kenya. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I moved everything all the way back. Um, well, like, I want to, I, I do, uh, I, I want to ask you actually about that job, about the Buzzfeed gig, which is amazing. Um, how, I mean, j just like the, the title itself is, is pretty astounding um, that, you know, a major media organization would just invest in something called the international women's affairs editor. I'm not sure what your precise title is, but something along those lines. Yeah. International women's rights correspondent, although I've shortened it to global just because it fits on the business card. Like um, global women's rights correspondent. And the rights part of that is really important. Um, 
And from the very beginning, from the very first conversation that I had with Ben Smith, who's the editor at BuzzFeed, uh, about this, you know, at that point, sort of quirky idea that he had that may or may not turn into something, um, he was talking in, in the language of women's rights. And, and I find that deeply important because women's issues, journalism in not just the States, but I mean, even in Kenya, it's the same thing still happens, you know, it gets it's second class journalism, gets relegated to the style pages. It's, it's a completely different animal than what we're trying to do. Um, and so every once in a while people will write an article or something that refers to the job and get the title wrong and I'll have to go ask for a correction, including, including a guy who's now our deputy foreign editor. Uh-huh. Hayes? <laughs> no, no. Uh-huh. Anup. Anup did a great piece about like foreign journalism. And, then, and I could see why this happened, just the, the syntax of the piece, the, word, the phrase women's rights, you know, blah, 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 something like BuzzFeed is, you know, looking at this and this and this and also international women's rights. And then the next sentence was, yeah, their global women's reporter, Gina Moore, da, 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 da. And I was like, I can see why this happened. I know women's rights is a lot to repeat, but I have to ask <laughs> you to correct it. <laughs> um, so I, I want to uh, talk about some some of the stories you've covered under that that rubric, women's rights. One is uh, the, the Ebola story in Liberia, which I, I referenced earlier, which I think was just absolutely tremendous reporting. And I'd encourage people actually to go back and, and check out our conversation, spoke, focus specifically on, on that issue. But I want to go over it uh, again now. I mean... How, I mean, so this, when did you arrive in Liberia for the first time in the outbreak, after the outbreak of, of Ebola? I don't remember exactly, but it was August. It was, um, it was a few days after the state of emergency was declared by the president because everyone was sort of buzzing about that. Um, and, and I remember at the time, the reason I decided to go um, was that we were, I had worked in Liberia before Ebola. Um, I worked there for a little more than a month in 2009. I worked there for a couple of weeks in 2012 with a really great local reporter called Maya Zongo. Um, and so Liberia was a place that I, I, I knew a little bit. Um, I felt a little connected <clears throat> and I could sort of imagine what was going on. I worked in, in Sierra Leone too. Um, but Sierra Leone in July sort of had all of the media attention, all of the international attention. And Liberia, at the end of July, got on everyone's radar because um, a Liberian government uh, employee who was traveling for a conference went from Monrovia to Lagos for, for a, a regional um, intergovernmental thing and died of Ebola in Lagos. He sort of collapsed at the airport and died in the hospital. And this... Um, became a fairly uh, big story. And so I was trying to figure out what in the world had happened from the, the Liberian side. And as I was calling around and talking to people, the story, you know, that that was the sort of media interest at that moment. But um, I ended up talking to this uh, assistant health minister who was trying to get me to understand, you know, yes, this is terrible, but also we have a bigger problem at hand than a guy who's already died in Nigeria. Um, and he was talking to me from outside what was then the only Ebola clinic in Monrovia. It was, uh, it had been, uh, sort of a part of the hospital had been, you know, ad hoc, uh, refigured for, for, for patients. And they could admit about 14 patients. They had 21 inside and they had another, 
you know, two dozen on the lawn waiting inside. And there was something about that that really grabbed me. And, um, and I said to him, you know, are the people on, on the lawn there, how do you know they're sick? And he said, they're symptomatic, right? I mean, he probably actually described it because the phrase that a patient is symptomatic, it would, took, it would take a very long time for sort of the world to catch up to what that means, that that means that they are contagious, that means that they are vomiting, diarrhea, the whole, you know, the body's starting to fall apart, the virus is starting to shed, and that's when the virus jumps from, you know, person to person. Um, and so I, I, I came to understand what he was trying to get me to picture, and it terrified me. Um, and I had been on the phone all day with Doctors Without Borders, which was doing incredible work in Sierra Leone. And so I called Doctors Without Borders again and said, hey, you know, this is now, the story's taking this direction. Do you guys know anything about this? Can you comment on this? Who should I be calling? And they said, oh my God, we had no idea. Hmm. And I thought, oh, geez. <laughs> if a reporter in Nairobi is moving information about what's happening at the only Ebola clinic in Liberia um, because she's talking to the right people on the phone and happens to be able to catch them at a moment when they happen to be able to talk because she happens to have time on her hands to do that, then there's something really big going on here and we're not going to understand it if we're not at the center of it. Um, so then we, we made plans to go, which was, you know, at the time a little bit terrifying because there wasn't anybody in, in, in um, Monrovia. There was a small hospital up, uh, uh, up in the north. and um, Was that in Bong County? No, it was in Lofa County. Lofa County. It's uh, the Good Samar the Samaritan's Purse Hospital where um, Kent Bradley got sick, the, mm. the, the guy who would become the American doctor who got Ebola. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if he got infected before I went or not. My, my chronology is a little off, but it was all happening sort of simultaneously. Um, but there was no one really in, in, in Monrovia, no, no big you know, INGO with the equipment that you need. Um, and the understanding of how the disease moves that you need to come in and really sort of set up clean shop in Monrovia, which is the kind of thing that, you know, every editor and security analyst at a, at a journalism firm dreams of you having. Um, we didn't have that. And, uh, so it was, uh, you know, not the easiest decision to say, Hey, let's do this and figure out, you know, how to medevacs work and all that stuff. Um, but we went, um, and it was fairly extraordinary time to be there because it was, more than a month before any meaningful global response would really kick in mm -hmm. for Liberia. And you could see, you know, Liberians are, are, are in general people who, if they are displeased, you will know, um, right? Politically, with their food, whatever, right? Mm -hmm. um, they're, they're, they're a very sort of, um, yeah, they're very, I love this about them, they're very vocal about, you know, anything. And the Liberians I know have opinions on everything, and I think it's magical. Um, but so, so when I was there, you know, it was very, when I first got there, it was very common for people to, to sit in the middle of the street because there was a dead body in their house that no one had come to take away for days and days and days. Um, and... And that was a fascinating moment because you had this system that wasn't working, right, where people were calling in to report that someone was sick um, and try to get the, the body removed safely. But the other part of that is that you had a system, right? 
everyone figured out, oh my God, we're at this point, we're in this alone. How are we going to do this? And it was, you know, it was a problem bigger than any one system could ever possibly hold. But I thought about that a lot when I was back in October and I was meeting people from NGOs and from governments and from, you know, people on the other side of your and my tax dollars as well, who would try to explain what it used to be like to me and then try to explain how useful the intervention that they were supporting in whatever way actually mm -hmm. was. And I always got a little bit miffed by that. And I'm not sure I always handled it the best way either when I was talking to folks in the field. But um, because, you know, that undoubtedly helps. You know, more help is helpful. It can also clog things up, blah, 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 unintended consequences. That's a whole other conversation. Um, but, you know, no one really seemed to show up with the awareness that, like, Liberians understood the problem before the rest of us got there and did a damn good job trying to, to, to quiet it down. It was more than anybody could have done alone. But, but I always felt that there was a little bit of a, a missing um, appreciation and humility about what was going on there. And I was really grateful that I got to see that in action, even when the action wasn't enough. But I mean, it so was one of, of the stories uh, that you cover that, that resonated with me and, and to this day does um, is, uh, you know, how the health system collapsed under, under the weight of Ebola, leaving pregnant women particularly vulnerable. Um, how did you, I, I guess, come to that story? I mean, it seems so intuitive. Um, but how, how was it that this story sort of manifests itself to you? Um, it's a good question. There, there's a lot about the work in, in, in Liberia that I just, it's a bit of a blur. I don't think I've ever worked at that pace, um, or been surrounded by things that are so, you know, everything that, that you encounter with your eyes is a story, um, before or since really, maybe, maybe a little bit, but. Uh, but I remember that I'd just be talking to people about, um, what had happened recently, right? So I, I essentially sort of showed up, got off a plane and then drove around looking for people sitting in the street. Cause that's what my fixer, who's an amazing journalist called Samwar Fala. That's what Fala had told me was going on. He's like, don't worry, we'll find plenty of that. And when we did, we just talked to them about, you know, what else was going on? Who was the person in the house that they were waiting to have picked up, which was the reason they'd be sitting in the street? Um, or, you know, what else had happened to their family? What had they heard about? Um, and we just heard a lot of stories about um, pregnant women not being able to get help with deliveries in the city. And we knew that the hospital was shut, the major maternity ward was shut, all that sort of thing. Um, and so it was just, it was something that kind of came up immediately and was just a matter of writing about as, as quickly as we could, um, you know, pin down all the facts about what was going on with the maternity wards and this and that and, um, find the, 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 the head of the midwives association and see what she had to say about that. I mean, it's, it was Do you think this, this problem will persist, the issue of, of, um, Maternal, maternal mortality rates that are higher than they would have been uh, absent the Ebola outbreak last year. I yeah, I mean, if I was a if I was a public health specialist, it's something I'd be planning for um, because you have two breaks, right? Well, or maybe three. 
you have the fact that these women simply couldn't get help, right, which already has the consequences that, that, that we've seen, and there are better numbers on now, obviously, than there were a year ago. Um, and then you have um, the broken link between a woman or a woman's family and the health system, right? That, that it takes a lot in, in, in places, even in some urbanized places, to get women to go to the hospital when there's a complication in the birth, which is where a lot of maternal mortality comes from, right? Giving birth in, in, um, outside of any kind of clinical setting and you encounter a complication. Already, in the best of times, getting a woman from her home to any kind of clinical setting is really difficult. And then for the better part of a year, you didn't have any clinical setting for most women to go to, right? And then on top of that, it's not directly related, but it would be a thing I was worried about if I was a public health professional, you have confusion, I would guess, concern, maybe distrust left over about the health system in general, right? Okay, I know I need to go there because um, in order to give birth safely, but my God, the things that happen at that hospital, right? Everyone who went into that hospital for a year never came out again. And, you know, you can tell me all day long that they went in because they had Ebola and they, they died of Ebola. But what I see is a woman who's giving birth for the first time in a village somewhere is that everybody who went into that building you're trying to send me to didn't come out again. Right. That's a really complex problem that's now, you know, it has shades of 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 a. Uh, of a, of a long-term problem about getting women to, to, to good um, health access, and now it has this new twist. I think that's going to be a really complicated thing to deal with. Uh, well, Gina, we are uh, just about out of time. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thanks for talking. This was, this was fun. This is interesting. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. I, yeah. That I cannot judge, but I enjoyed talking. Oh, no, I've done a lot of these. <laughs> I can judge. This was, this was great. <laughs> Thanks a lot, Mark. It was great. Thank you. All right. Thank you so much for listening. That was fantastic. Thanks again for everyone who is writing reviews on iTunes. And if you're coming to this because you are a fan of Gina Moore, I ought to plug Daughters of the Red Light, Coming of Age in Mumbai's Brothels by Shanur Sirvai, which is an ebook, a Kindle single ebook that I published through my social enterprise, Dawn's Digest, which is still, after two and a half weeks, the number one bestseller in their international affairs category. Thank you all who are supporting that book. It's just $1.99 or free if you have an Amazon Prime account. So go check it out. As always, thank you again for leaving a review on iTunes. And we'll have some fun episodes coming up in the future. All right. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.